back with another episode of the Collegian Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Alberti, and as always, and this week we talk some men's lacrosse. Men's lacrosse is currently 4-4, four and four, I think with a 3-4 and four record in the CAA, if I'm not mistaken, um, but they're still in the postseason somehow, facing Drexel, the hottest team in the CAA, so I'm, I'm joined by Colin and Carson Depp to talk about that. Also, forgot to mention it while we were talking, but Carson recently came out with a story talking about one of the players on this men's lacrosse team. His name is Ryan Fitzpatrick and his trip to Israel during the summer of 2020 during the pandemic and uh, his experience of playing lacrosse in Israel. It's a really cool story. Um, and then we, we shift over to some men's soccer who just lost to Penn State in the first round of the NCAA tournament on Sunday, 4-1 to one, uh, against his old assistant, Fran O'Leary's old assistant, I should say, and Jeff Cook and his very talented Penn State soccer team. So joined by Pablo Quiseno, who actually himself had a really good story about Yosuke Hanya, one of the most important pieces of that Minutemen offense um, and his journey from Japan and that entire transition coming to Amherst. Um, we're also joined by Sophie during that. But but before we get to all that, I want to shout out the seniors really quick. They just came out with their senior columns and it's getting to that point at the end of the year where they're no longer going to be a part of the collegian, which is just tough to wrap your mind around. So I'll start with Freeman. Freeman was really late to the the collegian in general. I think he had another major and now he's a, a sports management and sports journalism major, but he took over the role of a beat writer on the women's basketball team with Lulu and them two did a fantastic job together. But something that I thought was always really cool about Freeman was the language that he used when he wrote. Like it, it really made me feel a little bit smarter every time I read one of Freeman's pieces, just because of the words he used and the word choices and the phrasing and stuff. It just, it, it always made me smile just because I, I knew like how smart this guy was. And he just brought a sort of intelligence to his articles, which is very cool. And he, he really improved a lot in his time from November, say, to now. His writing has become so much better. And you can see that in all of his women's lacrosse stories. And he has a bright future in whatever he decides to do. Um, next, I'll talk about Evan, just for the fact that I wasn't on a beat with him. So I didn't ever really get to get that close with him. But I think Evan has lined himself up for success better than anyone has in the collegian that is currently at the collegian in terms of journalism, at least. Uh, he started writing for the Bruins his sophomore year, summer going into junior year. And he's kind of taken over Bruins, not taken over Bruins Twitter, but he's he's a part of Bruins Twitter. And he's always talking to guys with verified check marks. And you can tell that he has a very bright future in writing about hockey. And I'm <laughs> I'm really excited to see you know, who kind of gives him the opportunity to thrive. And I, I think he'll be at the top of Bruins beat writing <clears throat> sooner rather than later. Um, I'll talk about Dan McGee next. Me and Dan, we're, on, we're actually living very close to each other. Uh, I grew up in Rainham. He grew up in Bridgewater. For those of you that don't know, both towns in Massachusetts, they combine in high school for Bridgewater Rainham. So it was really cool. I actually didn't know him like at all in high school. And then I, I came to, to UMass and at the Collegian is where I first met him. And I covered football and basketball with him this year. And <clears throat> even though he's not a sports journalism major, he's just a business major. It's really cool to be able to see how much passion and work he puts in to every story and how much he cares. 
and he cares more than most people, which is impressive because most people that are in the sports section are sports journalism majors. But, you know, even without a real stake in the game in terms of what this means for his future, he just loved writing that much that he put that much work in, which is something that for someone as a sports journalist like me, I look up to and I just think like, wow, um, I still I got I got a long ways to go in terms of a lot. And he was one of the reasons one of the people that showed me that. And then I'll end it off with Noah. Noah was the the sports editor this year. He was an assistant editor last year. I didn't know him too well, but of course he would send me back edits and stuff my freshman year of all my really bad articles, whether it be about baseball or swim and dive and everything. But he was always very helpful. And then this year, obviously, our relationship just grew so much more just because I was working under him as an assistant editor, and then he was the editor. And I've never really met someone as like well thought out and smart. Like it seems like every time you bring up a tough question to Noah or a problem, he always has an answer, but it's not just a bad answer. Like it's a an answer that you know he's thought about before and kind of took care in terms of deciphering what is the actual right choice for all those. So he really did make a perfect sports editor, especially in a year that a lot of really weird and difficult decisions did need to be made. I think Noah was the perfect guy just for the fact that he is so well thought out and smart and you know, I'm he's another person obviously that I'm excited to see what he does after he graduates. I think he'll have a lot of potential because not only is he a really good decision maker, but he's a really good writer and he he really likes to think creatively. I know him and Dan just did that statistical piece on how much the pandemic actually affected basketball in the A10. Um, and he, I know he just loves doing stuff like that and really deep diving into the statistics and finding different ways to tell stories. So for all those seniors, I really appreciate everything that you did to help me, even if you didn't really know that you helped me, but I appreciate you more than I could ever say. Coming off of a six to nine or nine to six loss, I should say against Delaware last Friday, along with the fact that Drexel beat Towson, I think it was, 12 to 11. Was it Towson that they beat, Colin, to, um, yes, in the final was. seconds to kick them out of the CAA tournament and now boost UMass into the CAA postseason, who now will be taking on Drexel tomorrow, or when this comes out, I guess, on Thursday, it'll be today. Um, so UMass got a little lucky at the end there. They started off the season a little strong, 3-1, and one, and then they ended the year off on a 1-4 and four note. Um, not really ideal to say the least but i'm joined now by good old colin mccarthy and carson depp and guys going into this drexel matchup how i don't i don't even know where to begin like where like what does umass need to do to be able to compete with drexel who is the hottest team in the caa at this current point in time on a win a seven game winning streak the last team to actually beat drexel was the minutemen as well but drexel has since beat them um, pretty handedly. So how do you two take this matchup in the first round of the CAA postseason? I think they just, they have to put the pieces together. They've, they have all of the pieces in their, in their current state. And even in the last two weeks, they showed it. They had their best offensive game against Fairfield. 21 goals was phenomenal for their offensive uh, improvement, but then they, they fell right back off. And even when they played what I think is their best defensive game of the season against Delaware, they only let in nine goals on the day. Matt Note had, I think, like 14 saves. And he had a really good game against a great offense. So they had one of their best defensive games of the year. 
right after they had one of their best offensive games of the year, but they couldn't put the offense together against Delaware. They, they only put up six goals. They didn't score for like just about 40 straight minutes uh, in the end of that game. And that's something that's sort of been troubling them is the offensive inconsistency uh, without Chris uh, Connolly. So they, they really have to put that offense together very quickly this week if they want to play again on Saturday. Otherwise, it, I, it, you could see their season come to an end. Yeah, I think Colin really just hit the nail on the head there, saying that they really need to play a complete game, need to play together, and I think they have to play the full 60 minutes, which we haven't really seen much of besides maybe that Fairfield game when they really played the full stretch. But for the two games that they have already played, Drexel, the first game when they won 13-7, to seven, it was really Matt No kind of stole the show, show really, hit a big uh, day in net. And then the second game when they really lost by one goal there, right there, with Drexel and Drexel has been really hot recently. And so they want to, you know, have another chance of pulling a one out and playing on Saturday. I think Note's going to have to have a big day. So just from looking at the CAA stats, I do know that Drexel leads the conference in goals and assists per game. Um, so obviously they're an offensively minded team, but for someone like me that doesn't have a vast amount of knowledge of this Drexel lacrosse team, what should I expect uh, for this UMass opponent? They're, I would say they're really good all around. They're, they're kind of a team that you look at their roster and it's like UMass where there aren't, there, there may be, there's definitely players that stand out in the lineup, but they're just all around really solid. The difference between Drexel and UMass this year is that uh, Drexel has had success with their lineup that's incredibly solid and UMass just has sort of been inconsistent. Um, Drexel started the season off slow. They were, I think, one and two once they lost to UMass that first time. And then they haven't lost since. They, once they pulled it together, they have been pretty much unstoppable through the CAA. So I think what you would expect from them is uh, obviously the offense is there, but Keep in mind the defense will also be there too. Uh, their goaltending isn't the strongest in the conference, but I think their defense more than makes up for that. So they're just they're a balanced team, and they're gonna they're gonna be attacking from every level at UMass on Thursday. Yeah, I agree with Colin again. I think Drexel is really strong defensively, and I think uh, they're both just kind of UMass and Drexel are on a little bit of different paths. We saw UMass start the season pretty hot, and Drexel didn't start out obviously the way the way they would have liked, and then. Drexel just been on fire lately, winning a lot. And UMass has had a couple of losses that they could have pulled out, but they didn't. So it's, you know, it's going to be a really close matchup. And Colin, you say that Drexel doesn't have the strongest goaltending in the conference. Well, uh, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, Matthew Note, the Minutemen's starting goaltender, actually is first team all CAA. That team just came out today or yesterday or something. I think today, actually. Uh, Jeff Trainer joins him on the LCAA first team, and then faceoff specialist Zach Hawkman and Sam Eisenstadt. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. We're on the, the second team, and then Dylan Arant made the rookie team. So um, I guess just getting a reaction from those five from you two. Um, and then just in general, was there anyone that you feel got snubbed or anyone that you were surprised made it to one of those two teams or one of those three teams? I think I will say. I'm surprised that Sam Eisenstadt made it on there, not because he's not worthy. I believe that he is worthy of that second team selection, but I think it's really hard to judge defensemen in general because they aren't 
putting up the stats, like, like you can tell when an attackman is doing good because you look at the goals, you look at the assists. Uh, for defensemen, it's really caused turnovers and ground balls, and those don't tell nearly the full story. Sam Eisenstadt has been good because he just he has a man and he locks him down. And uh, so, so he's not generating all of the stats that maybe you'd like to see. He's not getting like four or five caused turnovers a game like some of the top defensemen, but he's doing exactly what they need to do. So that was my surprise. Um, as far as players that I expected, uh, I'll let Carson touch on note more because he's written a lot about him and he, uh, he's very comfortable with him. But Jeff Trainer is uh, not a surprise there at all on that first team. I've talked about him a few different times. He was a preseason All-American. He was a preseason Torton uh, watch list. He fell off of that a little bit, but he's still a very good player on both sides of the ball, and he definitely was deserving that first team spot. Yeah, so note, obviously, he's been really great this season for the Minutemen. Just being a sophomore, he's only really going to get better. And it wasn't surprising seeing him on that list because they've had had games where they've held teams to less than 10 goals four times this season, which is really impressive. They held Delaware in just this recent loss to nine. They held Towson to nine, and those are really – high scoring offenses and note has really been the big key of why they were in those games and had a chance to win them, but they unfortunately didn't pull it out. But yeah, so I'm not really surprised to see note on there. And I think he's only going to get better in the future. Um, I guess a question that I have about Eisenstadt, was he the one that locked down Hofstra's Ryan Tierney in the first game that UMass faced them? I, if I remember correctly, that was, sort of by committee uh, that they did that. I know Subak was on him a little bit, who was a, a grad student, uh, one, their veteran D guy. He's, he's, he's been great for them. Uh, he, he didn't make it on the list, but I think he probably could have slotted in there on that second team too, if they, if they were really pulling straws for it. <laughs> but I think that was, that was by committee. I think that Eisenstadt was on him a little bit. Subak was on him a little bit. Jake Dulac, I think maybe had some of him. Uh, they, they all got pieces of him. And then Matt note, as, uh, as Carson said, you know, it doesn't matter how good, uh, how good on offense you play. If you, if you can't get the ball past the goalie, right. <laughs> so now we have UMass taking on Drexel, as I aforementioned Thursday at 7 PM Drexel, according to inside lacrosse is currently ranked at 13th in the country, right behind Villanova, two spots ahead of Delaware, who UMass just lost to. So, uh, we'll definitely talk after that game. I don't know if we'll be able to catch up before the championship game, and that's on Saturday, I'm pretty sure. And that's that'll be if UMass were to win that or whoever were to win that um, is taking on Delaware and or Hofstra, or not and, but or Hofstra. They can't take on two teams at once. But Carson and Colin, as always, thank you for the time, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Joey. Last Sunday, the UMass Minutemen found themselves in the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2017, but they actually fell short to Penn State this time. Um, and Jeff Cook, the head coach, former assistant of uh, Fran O'Leary, the current head coach at UMass, they lost four to one. Um, I think it will, the Nittany Lions scored three goals in the first half, if I'm not mistaken, Pablo and Sophie. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah, so. they scored three. And from from what I read of you two stories, it seemed like obviously the first half was more or less controlled by Penn State. But in the second half, uh, UMass had a lot of attempts, but um, and they really were controlling the game. It just didn't really work out for them in the end. 
yeah they had a they had a ton of attempts um <laughs> during during the game uh to really make a lot of opportunities um happen i think they had like 14 shots um yeah they had 14 shots during the whole game for umass and then uh, penn state had nine total so um you know fran was really he was like you know it's it's hard for a team to lose when you put up like 14 shots um so he was kind of confused by that but um i think i think like yasuke hanya he he really made a lot of opportunities and, and various different players but it just i don't know they just couldn't find the back of the net and penn state i felt it felt like every time they they got in the box they made it happen so yeah yeah and um I also actually think in the first half, what's interesting is that I believe it was actually UMass that controlled possession for most of that half. Um, what Fran uh, talked about was that I believe um, that that uh, the three shots Penn State had that whole half all went into the back of the net. They had no other shots, nothing. So um it was just really unlucky and it was a total breakdown on, you know, defensive part. And it was um, a lot of turnovers that UMass was just not able to, you know, get men back and be able to prevent those shots. And there was nothing that George and Annette could have done. Yeah. And I think, I think friends said like they were unlucky with clearing the ball. And I, I agree with that. I mean, it just felt like they, they kept getting on like just so unlucky um on defense but also honestly penn state is a really good team offensively i mean even on defense somebody that stood out to me on penn state's team which they kept talking about him was um oh what's his name i can't remember uh brandon hackenberg i think he's uh he was all big 10 defense and there's this one play i don't know if you remember you remember seeing this sophie but he likes he like timed it perfectly if, if it's it felt like honey was just about to like get it around, like get around him. And then uh, Hackenberg just like slid and popped the ball right under him. And it was just like, okay, wow, this dude's a beast. So, and all game, like he was really uh, dominant. So that, that definitely helped them bolster their defense and, and really like negate all those shots uh, that UMass was putting up. Um, and sometimes, you know, it felt like UMass, like some of their shots were just kind of like really forced um, and not, not really something they were looking to, to get off. So, yeah, it was it was a tough game, and and something else to mention actually is that Liam Butts, uh, he came to, into the game off the bench. He was an All American last year, so um, that's pretty wild. And, um, just to speak more on Hanya, I believe that was one of the few times throughout the whole game that the def- the defense was actually able to stop uh, Hanya on the run. I mean, he used his foot skills were unmatched in that game, and he was able to defeat. De- defeat defenders and just get around them or you know find that open pass and get the ball to them which is um was just really spoken he also is just that type of player that's he's not selfish on the field he's gonna find the best pass or find the best option that's gonna give UMass the best opportunity and also the only thing I will say for taking those shots outside and, you know, some of those four shots is that when you get yourself into a three, nothing deficit with a half to go and a lot of space to make up, sometimes that's just what you, what a team needs to do. Um, you got to be bold and you got to be, you know, we, we saw it, they were playing a tight defense 
and it was, you know, they were having trouble getting those opportunities in the box. So I, so I actually think some of those outside shots, you know, they just, they were going outside and they were unlucky, but I, I, I didn't mind them because I think that it's just what you got to do when you're down by so much. Right. Right. Sophie, what did you think about the adjustments that Fran made, um, coming out into the second half? I mean, like, I feel like it was really impressive to see him like pivot. And I, I think he moved, yeah, he moved Yasuke out to like the wing. Right. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, that was the main change he made was moving, um, Hanya out to the, to the wing. And from there we saw them playing less of a centralized game Mm -hmm. and spreading the game out, which, from that, we just saw more opportunities being created. And I think that uh, speaks to, you know, the game as a whole is that, like I said, Penn State was playing such a tight defense. But once mm-hmm. we were able, once UMass was able to get the ball out farther and was able to get that to the wings and crosses or just through balls and things like that, more shots mm-hmm. were being taken, more opportunities created, and more pressure was put on Penn State's um, defense and goalie. Definitely. And I just want to mention the the shot differential was UMass with 14, seven of those on goal in comparison to Penn State's nine with only four of those being on goal. So um, a lot of a lot of success and efficiency for the Nittany Lion offense in comparison to what the Minutemen were able to do. Um, but you, you keep talking about Yusuke Hanya and Yusuke Hanya has been some, something that has been someone that has been brought up every single week on this podcast. And I think that that makes it a very um, justified case for why Pablo was able to write the, the story that he did on him and just his journey from Japan in to Amherst and that adjustment, not only learning a new culture and everything, but just adjusting to the team and becoming the player that he is. Um, I think something that you've brought up a few times now actually is like his point guard mentality and how you keep comparing him to Chris Paul. And when you look at Chris Paul's stats, they're not like really that impressive if you just were to look on a stat sheet, but then you watch the game and you're like, he's kind of dictating everything that's going on for this offense, especially the Suns this year. Like he's in the MVP consideration. He's that impactful of a player. Um, Yasuke Hanya has drawn that comparison. And I think that kind of shows volumes to the type of player he is, but yeah, that was a really cool story, Pablo. Yeah, thank you. Um, the feedback I got on that was amazing. Um, I don't know. I don't. I feel like I feel like I don't like. Uh, what do you call it? I don't want to make this about myself, but I don't like like attention. So it was kind of weird. Um, but it was it was cool. Um, so yeah, I mean Yusuke, I've been saying I feel like for all season, like it feels like he's almost like Chris Paul. You know, like you said, he dictates um the offense everything runs through him the you know what i mean and it almost feels like um it almost feels like he's an okc and uh <laughs> and sga is like alec hughes you know what i mean like he's just learning and uh kind of getting those like assists from from chris Paul and learning like how to do things right correctly um so yusuke's you know he's been awesome and um j- just to talk a little bit on the piece i mean he came here and uh he he couldn't really like he didn't know how to talk English at all. So Coach Fran took it under himself to to really um, you know, try to try to help Yosuke through the process by doing the game word of the day, uh, which you guys can read more about on the story. There's a little funny tidbit about that. Um and, and so I, I don't know. Um 
Fran really helped him like connect to the team and, and find a way to kind of express himself on and off the field, something Hanya was struggling with. Um, but now, you know, Yosuke, you can see he's just really comfortable out there. I mean, like we, we've been talking about, Penn State had a great, great defense and Yosuke is still able to be, you know, the best player on the field. And just like Chris Paul, things got a little chippy. Uh, you know, some of the people in Penn State were not happy. Um, and, and you know, they're like tossing him around and stuff like that. But Yosuke wasn't backing down, you know. So um, it's all the credit to him uh, working on his game. Uh, working hard on on learning English, uh, accommodating to the American culture, which is something extremely difficult to do. I'm sure uh, Americans are crazy, right? So you can only imagine. <laughs> but and, yeah, Yasuke has been he's been great. And you know, just in uh, just talking from a standpoint of watching that Penn State game, I mean, it was it was impossible not to notice him. the The ball was at his feet consistently throughout the match, so he just he really stepped up and, but as a whole, when you were saying he wasn't backing down from those fouls, I mean, I felt like fouls were being called left and right in that game. That was a high tension game mm-hmm. with a, uh, a lot of free kicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Jeff, Jeff Cook and, um, and uh, coach Fran are in contact anymore after that game, maybe. No, I'm joking, but you know, <laughs> I, if people didn't know they're friends, um, so, so yeah, but I, I'm sure they're fine, but I could definitely see how things got a little out of hand on the field. So, yeah. Yeah. And I liked your little Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis, Alexander comparison, because that brings me into talking about Alec Hughes, whom you compared to Shea Gilgis, Alexander, the young uprising star, I guess you could say in a way um, he won Atlantic 10 rookie of the year for men's soccer this year, led UMass in goal scoring and was really good. And a, a, as you said, probably a top two, top three contributor to this team um, as a freshman, which is kind of speaks volumes about his talent. Uh, what did you see from him this year, Pablo, that really allowed him to kind of deserve that Atlantic 10 Freshman of the Year award? Aside from from the statistics, right, because um, I think I think it's. I think what he does really well is he's he's fast. First off, um, I think Fran said that he was faster than um, than anticipated when he arrived at UMass, um, and he's he's got talent and a knack for being in the right places. Um, and and obviously playing with Hanya, that's a huge help, especially coming in for your freshman year. So, but things that he does need to work on that Fran mentioned, oh, I guess for the whole team really, but you know, for somebody like him is, is sometimes he can really get beat up in the box. Um, you know, he's more of a lanky build, uh, skinnier, not as much like, not so like, you know, tough. And especially in, in, in collegiate soccer, it's just like a, it's a really rough game and, and really physically taxing, which is something else Hanya talked about in the, in the piece uh, or in the interview that I had with him. Um, just for him to adjust to that was, was huge, you know, and, and for Alec Hughes to come in here as a freshman and, and put up the numbers he did and, and become rookie of, of the year for the um, A-10 is really impressive. So, um, but look for him to put on some weight and come back next year um, uh, better. And just um, from a more general soccer standpoint, I think, you know, speed is crucial for forwards. Um, it, you know, a lot of times the play is to send those long balls into the corners or a long ball over the head of the defense. And you need that speed up top to be able to just 
get around them and, you know, and control that ball. And I think that's, that's where his speed really aids him in being such a great forward and being able to, you know, get as many goals as he has this season. Yeah. um, (laughs) Alec Hughes is going to be someone to watch out for in the next three to four years for the Minutemen. Um, It's going to be interesting to see the turnaround this team has to take just going from playing in the spring to playing in the fall, like normal in this pandemic year. Um, But I guess that'll, that'll do it for this, this uh, section of the podcast, Pablo and Sophie. Thank you as always for the time. And if you haven't, the story of Yosuke Hanya is called Tokyo Native. Yosuke Hanya's struggle adapting to a new culture while slowly becoming a star for the for UMass soccer. It's on the Daily Collegian website. Please check it out if you haven't. It's a phenomenal story. So thank you all for listening.